With his unique perspective on the medical legal system, here's Victor Cotton. Welcome to the Law and Medicine Podcast. Today's topic is the legal considerations related to leaving your job. A generation ago, most of us remained in the same practice for our entire career, but that's no longer the case. We now commonly change jobs in search of better opportunities. And when you're going through this process, most of your focus will be on your new position, making sure that it's a good fit. However, before you commit to that position, you should review the following aspects of your present position so that you can make the transition with a minimal degree of difficulty. And to help you keep track of the presentation, I've numbered each item, and there are 15 in total. Item number one, the terms for ending your current employment relationship. You should not commit to a new position until you know how and when you can exit your current position. And this information should be contained in either your employment contract, an institutional policy, or the Physician Employment Handbook. In most situations, you can end your employment relationship by providing the employer with 60 or 90 days advance written notice. And the contractor handbook will specify an address to which the notice must be sent. However, you need to be careful here because in some cases, the notice can be given only at certain times of the year, such as near the anniversary date of the contract. In other cases, the termination clause isn't applicable during the first few years, meaning that you may not be able to exit the relationship until that period of time has passed. So, before you pick a date for starting your new job, make sure you understand the terms for leaving your current job. Item number two, repayment of monies. When you take a new job, most employers will give you a signing bonus, and if you have to relocate, they will also pay your moving expenses. However, if you leave the job within the first few years, you will typically be required to repay some or all of those monies. Fortunately, in many cases, the repayment amount will be prorated, such that the longer you stay, the less it becomes. And if that's the case, it may not be enough money to worry about. But if the contract says that you're required to repay a $50,000 signing bonus if you leave within the first two years, then it would be very unwise to leave after one year and 11 months. In that situation, you should probably stay an extra month and keep the $50,000. So be sure that you understand any repayment obligation that you might have before you decide to leave. Item number three, hospital support agreements. If you recently joined a private practice, it's possible that the local hospital is supporting your salary through a line of credit. This won't occur if you're employed by a hospital or a hospital-owned practice, but it's fairly common when you work for a private group. And you'll know whether you're in this situation because when you took the job, you would have signed some documents from the hospital that describe the nature of the support. And here's why it matters. In return for the salary support, the hospital will require you to practice in the community for some period of time, typically two to five years. And if you fail to do that, you must repay some or all of the support that the hospital provided. 
I'm not a big fan of these agreements because they force you to repay some of your salary, but they're enormously beneficial to the group that's hiring you, and as a result, they're fairly common. And because these agreements often result in several hundred thousand dollars of debt, it may be prohibitively expensive for you to leave the job until the necessary period of time has passed, which, as I said, may be two to five years. Item number four, incentive payments. In addition to your base salary, most employers will periodically pay bonuses that are tied to various quality and productivity metrics. The timing of these bonuses varies. They can be paid quarterly, they can be paid annually, they can be paid randomly. Some employers require that you be employed through the entire period of the bonus in order to receive any bonus money. So if it's a yearly bonus, you have to be employed for the entire year. Other employers will prorate the bonus based upon the amount of time that you were employed. As an added variable, some employers specify that you must be employed on the date that the bonus is paid, which will usually be several months after the bonus is earned. So before you resign, make sure you don't inadvertently cost yourself a significant amount of bonus money. Item number five, unused paid time off or PTO. If you've accumulated a significant amount of paid time off, CME money, or other employment-related funds, make sure you know what will happen with those benefits after you resign. Some employers will pay you for any unused benefits, while others will specify that they will be forfeited. To further complicate the situation, some employers limit the amount of PTO that you can take after you give notice that you're leaving. And if that's the case, it may be to your advantage to use some or all of your PTO before you notify your employer of your resignation. Item number six, the vesting of money in your retirement plan. Under federal law, any contribution that you make to a retirement plan belongs to you and cannot be taken from you. So if you've been putting 5% of your paycheck into a 401k, a 403b, or some other qualified retirement plan, that money is yours no matter what happens to your job or to your employer. However, the same is not true of money that your employer has been contributing. For example, it's very common for employers to match the employee's contribution to a retirement plan, such that you put in 5% and your employer puts in 5%, which is nice because it immediately doubles your money. And all of that money will appear on your account statements. But here's the wrinkle. If you leave the job you may lose some or all of the employer's contribution and that money will come back out of your account. And this could be a significant amount because some employers contribute the maximum that the IRS allows, which is about $19,000 a year. So after three years of contributions and factoring in some growth, the employer's portion of your 401k could easily be $70,000. And if you leave too soon, you could lose all of it. The principle at work here is called vesting. If the money is vested, it's yours to keep. 
And if it's not vested, it will be forfeited back to your employer when you leave. And as I said, the money that you put in is always vested. However, the vesting of the employer's contribution varies. In some plans, it vests immediately, which is good, while in others it can take up to seven years to fully vest. A very common type of arrangement is known as cliff vesting where there's no vesting until you've been employed for three years, at which point everything becomes vested. So it's all or nothing at three years, and if that's your situation, you probably don't want to leave after two years and 11 months. So check the vesting schedule of your retirement money before you resign. Item number seven, malpractice tail coverage. Because patients who suffer bad outcomes are given several years to file a lawsuit, it's possible that you could be sued by a patient after you leave a job. And this can occur even if you move across the country. To cover this residual exposure, it's a good idea and usually a legal requirement that we have malpractice insurance. And this can be accomplished in one of two ways. If, while you were employed, you had malpractice insurance that was occurrence-based, and that's spelled O-C-C-U-R-R-E-N-C-E. If you were covered with an occurrence-based policy, the residual exposure is automatically covered and no additional insurance is needed. However, if you were covered by a claims-made policy, then you do need additional insurance And this policy is commonly referred to as tail coverage. Depending on your specialty and geographic location, a tail could cost as little as $5,000 or it could cost more than $100,000. So before you resign, make sure you know whether you'll need tail coverage and also who will pay for that coverage. Item number eight, non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses prevent you from competing with your former employer after you leave your job. If you're subject to one of these clauses, it'll be specified in your employment contract, where it's often referred to as a restrictive covenant. On the bright side, non-compete clauses are illegal in about 10 states. And I say about because some states allow them in certain situations, but not others. The main states where they're not allowed are California and Massachusetts. Unfortunately, if you're in a state where they're permitted, you will almost certainly have one in your contract. In most cases, the non-compete clause will specify that should you leave, you cannot practice within a certain number of miles of where you had been practicing for the next one to two years. The clauses vary as to what's permitted and what's prohibited, but what doesn't vary is that employers take these clauses very seriously. They will sue you if you violate them. You will probably lose the lawsuit, and you should therefore not violate a non-compete unless you have a written waiver, written permission from the employer, and they will almost never give you that permission. The long and the short of it is that these clauses prevent you from going across the street or down the road and joining another practice, even if the person across the street will pay you more money. You are thus prohibited from receiving the full value of your services, the full price that you're worth, 
And for that reason, I believe these clauses are un-American. But unfortunately, they're permissible in most states, and most employers in those states will insist that you sign a non-compete as a condition of your employment. So before you take a new job, determine whether you're subject to a non-compete and either obtain a waiver or take a job that's outside the restricted area. Item number nine, non-solicitation clauses. Non-solicitation clauses prevent you from encouraging patients and fellow employees from coming with you when you leave or following you after you leave. Unlike non-compete clauses, these clauses are legal in every state and they're in almost every employment contract. So no matter where you are, you're most likely subject to a non-solicitation clause. However, these clauses are not nearly as burdensome as non-compete clauses because the only thing they prevent is solicitation. You cannot solicit patients, and you cannot encourage or ask fellow employees to follow you. However, these people are usually allowed to follow you, provided they do so of their own accord. So if you move across town and some of your old patients show up at your new office, you're allowed to see them. However, you cannot reach out and ask them to come to your new practice. And this leads me to item number 10, which is notifying patients that you're leaving. If we simply disappear and leave our patients hanging, we could be accused of patient abandonment. To avoid this possibility, we should notify patients that we're leaving. So the difference between abandonment and non-abandonment is whether the patient has been notified that we're leaving. And in most cases, your contract will specify that this notification will be performed by your employer. As to what you're permitted to tell patients, it depends on the situation. In my opinion, if patients ask where you're going, telling them is not solicitation because you're simply answering a question. And it should therefore be permissible. But your employer may not see it that way. So make sure that your patients are notified that you're leaving and ascertain what role you're allowed to play in that process. Item number 12 is the ownership of the patient's medical records. Every physician contract I've ever seen specifies that the medical records of the patients you've been seeing belong to the employer and prohibits you from taking any information with you when you leave. However, this is not nearly as bad as it sounds because any patient who chooses to follow you can simply request that his records be forwarded to your new practice and under HIPAA, your old employer must forward those records. So don't worry about the medical records. Item number 12 is your healthcare insurance. On the day that you leave your job, it's likely that your health care insurance, along with all of your other employer-related benefits, will end. And because you probably won't start your new job the very next day, you'll probably have a gap in your insurance coverage which puts you at financial risk should you become ill or injured. The simplest way to cover this gap is to continue your existing insurance coverage under COBRA and that's C-O-B-R-A, which is an acronym for the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. 
Under COBRA, you have the right to continue your existing healthcare benefits for up to 18 months after leaving a job. The downside is that you have to pay for those benefits, but the cost is usually less than obtaining comparable coverage on your own. The only caveat is that employers that have less than 20 employees are not required to offer COBRA benefits. So if you work for a small group practice, this option may not be available. Item number 13 is divesting equity. If you have an ownership interest in your current practice and you leave the practice, you will usually be required to sell your interest back to the other partners. The terms of this transaction will be specified in the shareholder agreement, which you signed when you became a shareholder. To make the purchase easier for the practice, most shareholder agreements specify that the practice can pay the money over the course of several years. Item number 14 is public student loan forgiveness. If you work for a government entity or for an organization that's tax-exempt, as most hospitals are, for 10 years, you may be eligible to have the remainder of your student loans forgiven. There are some other criteria that you have to meet in order to qualify, but if you've got a significant amount of student loan debt and you're coming up on 10 years of employment for a tax-exempt entity, you might want to stick around. And it's important to keep in mind that the 10 years does not have to be with the same employer, it does not have to be sequential, and it includes the time that you spent in your residency and fellowship. And item number 15 is to resolve any outstanding quality of care issues. And this is very important. Let's suppose that in your current job, you recently had several post-op complications. And even though these weren't your fault, they created a statistical aberration that the quality committee decided to investigate. And you're not worried about the situation because the care that you provided was appropriate, but the QI committee's looking into it. And while that's occurring, another job comes along, you take that job, and you resign from your current position and also from your hospital privileges. Well, the hospital's now required to report you to the National Practitioner Data Bank, which results in a permanent quality of care entry against you. Why? Because resigning during a quality of care investigation automatically results in a report to the databank. The rule exists to prevent substandard clinicians from resigning before the quality committee can catch up with them. However, it applies regardless of the reason that you resign and regardless of whether the committee would have found a quality problem. So be careful about resigning if you're the subject of an open quality of care concern. Most of us will change jobs at least a few times over the course of our careers, and I hope that this presentation will help you make those transitions in a way that's most beneficial to you. Thank you for listening to me today. You have been listening to Victor Cotton, physician, attorney, and founder of Law & Medicine. 
If you'd like to learn more about us or support our efforts, we invite you to visit our website at lawandmed.com. We offer a variety of online educational courses for which you can earn Category 1 CME credit. Many of our courses can be used to meet your malpractice insurance company's requirements for a policy discount. And if you receive a CME allowance from your employer, we can provide you with a receipt which can be used to obtain reimbursement. This has been a production of Law & Medicine, Hershey, Pennsylvania. All rights are reserved.